Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Shrimplin. I am delighted and very honored to be here this evening. Uh, I want to start, in fact, with some broader thanks to Dr. Shrimplin and to Gresham College for the invitation to lecture this evening. I admire very much uh, Sir Thomas's uh, mission of free public lectures that have been going on here at Gresham College now into the fifth century. I've been telling colleagues back in America that Sir Thomas basically set up the TED Talks of the 16th century, that he, he was that prescient. Dr. Shiplin and I first met uh, in September 2013, almost four years ago now. It was at an orientation session for Fulbright scholars come over from America to spend a year here in the UK. So Fulbright, as some of you might know, is an international educational exchange program. It's set up by the US government that sends American students and professors such as myself abroad to countries all around the world. And then it brings uh, students and professors from those other countries to the US for educational exchange. It's one of the good things that the US government does. I know that our, our government and our president don't always play so well in the news these days. Uh, I can only say I did not vote for that man. I'm sorry. It, all, it, all, it will pass. It will pass, believe me. So I was one of those Fulbright scholars, as Dr. Shrimplin said, in 2013-14, uh, come here from the University of Alabama, which is in the southern part of the United States. I came with my, my husband and our two teenage boys, who are here this evening also. And we were up north at the University of Leeds. We had a wonderful year. I loved it. And it was during that year that I wrote this book. Um, the, this is the, the hardback version, Happily Ever After. Oh, here's the cover here. Uh, the Romance Story in Popular Culture. And uh, I have some copies that are just hot off the press of the paperback. Uh, this is actually the first time I've seen the paperback edition myself. It just came out, and somehow you got it here in the UK before we did in the US. So I have some copies if anybody would like to buy one after the lecture, um, since they're brand new here. Uh, it was uh, the subject of the, the book, Happily Ever After, is what I'll be speaking about this evening. But before I dive into that, I want to also thank the US-UK Fulbright Commission. Uh, they were supporting my research that year that I was here in residence at the University of Leeds. And this year, along with the Gresham anniversary, the Fulbright Commission, the Fulbright Program, is celebrating its 70th anniversary of educational exchanges um, from the US to around the world, but especially here celebrating the UK exchange. Um, not quite the 400 years of history that you have here at Gresham, but still an impressive 70-year history of education support. Current and former Fulbright scholars, such as myself, have a long history of presenting lectures here at Gresham College. Gresham and Fulbright partner in this way and share this common mission of supporting new learning and, uh, a quote, a lovely quote from the Gresham website, contributing to society through education and debate, holding core values of freedom, of thought and expression. So I am very honored to be here at Gresham College as part of such an illustrious history of public lectures stretching out into its fifth century, as I said, and connecting my country with yours. So my talk this evening is going to delve into one of the most powerful and omnipresent cultural storylines. You all know it. Find your one true love and live happily ever after. I find this romance story fascinating. It's ubiquitous in sites like uh, fairy tales, Cinderella story, Disney princess movies, uh, rom-com date movies, 
the lyrics of like every pop music song ever written, the wedding industry, it's uh, the advertising's favorite emotional well that they go to over and over, and then in my particular focus of interest in the actual massive global publishing industry of woman-oriented romantic fiction. So romance is this perennial theme in cultural representations, both highbrow and middlebrow. So we chase romance, we structure our lives around it, we fashion much of our art and culture from it. So my goal, my aim is to trace out the seductive power of these stories of love that have such a hold on us for better and often for worse, right? So I'm gonna structure this talk by looking at three related questions this evening. And uh, there'll be time at the end for discussion because I'm interested in what all of you have to think about it also. Uh, question one, what exactly is this romance narrative? Two, how are we misled by romance? And three, what can we learn from romance storytelling about today's changing norms for gender and sexuality? Okay, question one, uh, what is the romance narrative? Now, here to set things up a little bit, I uh, must first tell you that I am a lifelong romance reader. It's, this is a habit that I acquired from my mother. She used to keep this like, giant stack of romance no novels tottering by the side of her bed. Uh, she actually still does. So I grew up reading her romance novels and I've continued to read them. I found them relaxing and fun, especially uh, once I had kids. Uh, it was like this, this me time, this fantasy pleasure and escape. If you throw in a, a glass of wine, maybe some chocolate at the end of the day, I was a happy woman. I'd call myself a passionate fan of the genre, but also sometimes an uneasy one. What exactly is this pleasure of the genre, I would ask myself. What is the appeal of this romance story that has such a hold on me and then on millions of other readers, many of them women? So I wrote this academic book in order to get answers, in order to interrogate, to critically interrogate my own fascination with the genre. But I didn't want to write only from the outside as a professor of gender studies, pop culture studies, looking in on this world of romance landia in order to analyze it. I wanted to understand and study the storyline of romance from the inside also. So my research methodology for this book involves spending about five years alongside communities of romance writers doing interviews and participant observation. Here, in, I joined the UK Romantic Novelists Association, and in America, I was a member, I continue to be a member of the Romance Writers of America, uh, doing work like attending annual conferences, monthly writers groups, doing many interviews with authors, aspiring authors, published authors, highly successful authors, moderately successful authors, and uh, readers and fans of the genre. And then as part of that insider work, uh, Dr. Shrimplin mentioned this, I wrote and I eventually published with, with Simon & Schuster these two romance novels that went along with my academic study so that I could be inside the genre and outside looking in also. I wrote under the pseudonym of Catherine LaRoche. She's, she's my more romantic, exotic alter ego. <laughs> I really like Catherine LaRoche. She gets to have more fun than I do as an academic professor sometimes. 
So I'm taking us here on a journey into Romancelandia, this cultural and literary landscape where lovers meet and match up and in which we also internalize as this high pressure script, not always in our own best interests, for how we're supposed to live our own personal lives. So here's my first argument with all of this. Even if you never read actual romantic novels, if you swear to God you've never picked up one of these novels in your life and you never will, you, we all, already are astute and well-informed readers of the romance story. You know this story inside out. It's the soup we swim in. It's everywhere in the culture. The romance narrative is a central storyline of human culture. So pushing this thesis a little bit further, the story of romance is the guiding text offered by the contemporary culture of the modern West on the subject of how women and men should relate. Find your one true love, your one and only, and live happily ever after. So to the, the ancient and perennial question of how to define and live the good life, American pop culture's resounding answer is through uh, the, the narrative of romance, sex, and love. According to Stephanie Kuntz's History of Marriage, a gigantic marital revolution occurred in Western Europe and North America during the Enlightenment. So prior to the late 18th century, notions of marriage tended to be pragmatically based, right? More on political and economic considerations of money, alliance, power, resources. The sentimental and passionate love-based marriage stood in rather radical contrast to this older sense. So through the um, 19th and then 20th centuries, the romantic love match came to dominate as the ideal for marriage in Western culture. This romance narrative is now, at this point, arguably the most influential cultural narrative about how to achieve happiness and fulfillment in the modern Western world. It's endlessly taught, it's replayed in a multiplicity of cultural sites. So here we start to see that romance is not only a narrative, but also becomes, somewhat more disturbingly, an imperative, a grammatical imperative, right? Find your one true love. Live happily ever after. So the couple, traditionally heterosexual, but no longer necessarily so. There's lots of gay, lesbian, and queer romance storytelling uh, being published nowadays. Same-sex marriage is being legalized in 2015 in my country. Uh, so, but this couple, in whatever form, is made into a near-mandatory norm by the media and popular culture. So more about that bit um, a little bit later. Uh, first, I want to tell you a bit more about romance publishing. I think this is one of the most interesting cultural sites where romance stories are told and inculcated and, a crucial point, experimented with in new forms. In America, romance fiction, or sometimes it's called romantic fiction here, uh, is our best-selling genre. It's a huge moneymaker. Romance novels constitute the largest se segment of fiction publishing. Romance fiction has a readership uh, in 2008 of almost 75 million Americans. That's 29% of all Americans over the age of 13 have read a romance novel that year. That's about when I started reading at the age of 13, although I wasn't an American at the time. I'm Canadian by birth. I was born and raised in Canada. So this massively popular genre now racks up over a billion dollars in annual US publisher revenue. 
The vast majority of these books are read by, bought and read by women. It's a women-dominated genre. The gender breakdown is about 84 to 91% for women, uh, men accounting for about 9 to 16% of the sales. Globally, uh, 200 million Mills and Boone romances are sold every year. These romances are translated into about 90 languages sold around the world. Romances have these ancient literary roots. So it's a massive contemporary publishing genre, but ancient literary roots. So we can think about where does this genre fit into the larger history of literature. Although the current form, oh, here's a good one. The current form of uh, genre romance dates from the appearance of 1970s bestsellers, such as Kathleen Woodhouse's The Flame and the Flower. This bodacious narrative just thrilled me when I uh, read it as a teenager. But we can trace a much longer lineage for these stories. So the 1970s is sort of when the contemporary form of romantic fiction uh, dates from. But a lot depends on definition. If by romance novel one means an Anglo-authored, love-based courtship plot resolving to a happy marriage, then the literary ancestry uh, traces back further through highlights such as the Mills and Boone's uh, publishing empire that I was just mentioning, uh, the Regency set novels of Georgette Hare. Anyone who read? Raise your hand if you read Georgette Hare. Yes, of course, okay. Um, 19th century masterworks, uh, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, uh, you can keep going down to Samuel Richardson's 1740 bestseller, Pamela, a bestseller of its time. The genre was popular uh, as it, in the past as it is now. If one adopts an even broader definition uh, that encompasses stories about the trials and tribulations of romance, of love, of uh, erotic desire, then the earlier and the wider context of the genre includes the 17th and 18th century British amatory fiction of best-selling writers of their time, Aphra Bain, Eliza Haywood, I'll talk a bit more about her in, um, in a minute. The poetry of medieval troubadours, we keep going back in time. The earliest European novel that we have, still extant, the earliest European novel was a romance story. Kellerowi, published by the Greek first century CE author, Caraton. You could keep going back to the unapologetically erotic love poetry of the biblical Song of Songs. So there's an ancient lineage for these stories. What fascinates me is how, even with the possibility of new and more open 21st century norms of gender equality, sexual experimentation, the romance narrative continues to thrive, or depending on your taste, you might say, continues to bedevil us. So these romance titles now spread um, over a, a wide variety of subgenres. Uh, here's an example of contemporary uh, romance continue to remain popular. Here's this recent UK bestseller made into a movie. Uh, the historical romances that I particularly read as a teenager remain popular with Scottish settings. We look at the Scottish settings that allow for covers of bare-chested, muscled Highland lairds, very popular. I have to tell you, sometimes the giant sword clasped upright in the hero's hand is not just a sword. But the genre has developed in many ways over the 35 years that I've been following it. Uh, new romance genres have popped up, such as gay and lesbian romance, 
uh, Christian and Amish romance. You probably don't have a lot of Amish here in the UK, but it's very popular in the US. Um, urban fantasy, science fiction, paranormal romance is very popular, the whole Twilight series, for example. I read a three-wolf shapeshifter menage paranormal uh, story uh, the other day. So all of this is now available. All right, now we need to get a bit more precise. So I've been mentioning a sort of cliched tagline, find your one true love and live happily ever after, but we need to dig deeper into what this really means. So here's my next argument. There are nine key elements, this is one of the arguments I develop in my book, there are nine key elements that make up the deep storyline of the romance genre and the broader cultural romance narrative that grows out of it. So these nine components describe the essential foundational premise of the core romance story that tellers then spin out into the million and one different forms of romance, variations that we read and watch and listen to in the pop culture. So this type of breakdown, it helps explain romance's overwhelmingly uh, female authorship and consumer base. As in my analysis, the story addresses itself to typical female anxieties, interests, and concerns. So I'm going to tell you these nine elements. I'll list them quickly, and then I'll go over them in a bit more detail. So the nine essential elements. I've got to move on from this guy because he's distracting me a little bit. Okay. So I'm going to put, that's the front and back cover of my book back up there. Okay. Nine essential elements. Uh, one, it's hard to be alone, especially, two, as a woman in a man's world. But three, romance helps as a religion of love, even though it involves hard work and risk because it leads to healing great sex and happiness, and number nine, because it levels the playing field for women. So let me lay out each of these points in a little bit more detail with some of my uh, critique and evaluation of these claims. So claim number one, it's hard to be alone. First claim of the romance story. Humans are social animals. We are deeply relational. As babies, we need love as much as we need food and shelter, right? Um, while there are models for the solitary life, most people, uh, most adults continue to seek loving connection through family, through friends, through community. Okay, point two. It's a man's world. In this world wherein we all seek connection, the stakes are higher for women. Compared to men, women often have less power, less money, fewer choices, suffer from greater vulnerability, uh, and from double standards, especially in regards to sex and romance. Women are often socialized into looking after men uh, and children and elders and have their needs and interests overlooked. Men, of course, is, is obviously not a monolithic category in which all men are the same, nor obviously is women. Uh, these situations of inequality vary widely and they intersect with other categories such as race and class. So, for example, a hierarchy of value grants more social prestige to able-bodied heterosexual men who conform to certain norms of masculinity. Thus is the romance hero manly, uh, tall, powerful, muscled, competent, ruggedly handsome. So the terms of feminist theory analyze the situation as gender equality, sexism, homophobia, misogyny, patriarchy. In terms of the romance story arc, women characters suffer at the story's beginning, when the books open, when the movie begins, from living in this man's world, wherein the balance of power is in some way stacked against them. So the women's conflicts may include, and here you see a whole 
a range of, of plot lines may include things like shaming or lack of knowledge about her sexuality, um, uh, anxiety about weight or appearance, a memory of past trauma, some sort of overbearing or inattentive boyfriend at the opening, full-blown domestic or sexual abuse, financial vulnerability, solo caregiver responsibilities often for a child. Sexuality then entails further challenges and vulnerabilities for women due to disparities in the enjoyment of sex, unintended pregnancy, miscarriage, difficulties of childbearing and birth, and abandonment with children. The romance story opens and begins to play out in this difficult world. So number three, the essential element number three is a belief in romance as a religion of love. So the romance story offers this answer to these problems that it is hard to be alone, especially as a woman in a man's world, the answer of romantic partner love. The romance story believes in the redemptive power of love, the resurrection power of love. Romance entails faith in love as a positive force in people's lives. In this sense, you can say that romance functions as religion, as salvific, as the source of ultimate significance or concern. Romance is a storyline that, that stakes its belief in, um, I'm sorry, it stakes its claim on the belief that the world is a good place and that despite all of life's injustices and suffering, both love and love stories make the world a better place. So the romance narrative is not cynical or pessimistic in this regard. Its tone is not that of irony. In a jaded world, such an optimistic stance is sort of easy to uh, mock as a type of sentimental sappiness, right? But the stance is hard, if not impossible, to deny. Love, love does make the world a better place. The romance story becomes problematic, however, if and when it privileges romance over other forms of love as the best or the highest or the only love. Claim number four, romance requires hard work. In the plotline of a romance story, the conflicts between the main characters must be resolved. Obstacles, both internal obstacles and external obstacles, must be overcome. Writers, when I would interview them here, they talk of torturing their characters, torturing them, making them earn their happy ending. And the best novels are ones which torture the characters the most, that ratchet up the conflict. Claim five, romance involves work. I'm sorry, romance involves risk. Uh, love doesn't always work out. In fact, it may fail spectacularly. Right? The stories of romance novels are technically romantic comedies in that they end happily, but they can all too easily flip, turn into the failure in love, of love in tragedies such as the, you know, the iconic Romeo and Juliet. This knowledge haunts romance stories as a type of shadow text. Stories may open with a bad boyfriend, for example, whom we know is on his way out, or a previous generation's failed romance that is redeemed through the current character's story. The romance storytelling, uh, in my reading, is the safe imaginative space to explore the meaning and shape of this landscape of risk. Uh, claim number six, romance facilitates healing. Love heals all wounds. There's a cliche, love conquers all. While these are cliches that stretch beyond realism into this sort of mythic ideal, love does grant strength to endure many of life's hardships because love pulls us out of and beyond a type of narrow egoism into concern for another, 
it can lead to maturity, generosity, strength of character, a type of spiritual fulfillment. Such love can give you greater confidence and heal past hurts. Uh, claim number seven, romance leads to great sex, especially for women. The romance storyline is in this way sex positive. Whether the intimacy level of any particular story is cozy or spicy, the romance teaches that sexuality is not shameful or sordid or dirty, but it's natural, healthy, and empowering. It's a key part of what bonds two lovers into one. Women in romance novels are always sexually satisfied, even if such satisfaction is only implied off-page in like a Jane Austen type uh, novel, uh, only implied by the quality of the lover's relationship and the happy ending uh, at the end of the story. So for readers, the romance genre can connect women to their sexuality in positive ways, which is a theme I heard a lot in the interviews that I did with authors and readers. Point eight, romance makes you happy. The supportive love of a good partner, what the romance story calls a true love, is a sweetness to be treasured. Uh, despite the, the romance story um, tagline about living, ever happy, living happily ever after, this happiness is not meant to be a simple or a facile one. It's um, envisioned as a mature happiness rooted in a poignant knowledge of the, the inevitable loss of the beloved through death and open to the ongoing challenges inherent in any relationship. There can, however, be an over-the-top aspect to this uh, element. The excess of the lover's commitment can strike some as some who are not fans of the genre, sort of a ridiculous lovey-dovey campiness. That's actually a quote from my sister-in-law, who isn't a fan of the genre. So there's the, the eye-rolling that the genre can provoke, right? But the story must complete its narrative arc. So begun in the suffering and unhappiness of the real world, the romance story ends in the healing and happiness of the mythic world. Now, it's not to say that neither love nor happiness are real, but that the romance story narrates their reality in this mythic way, pushing it into a more perfect fantasy space. Now, the more problematic version of this essential element is the implication that a person must be in a romantic relationship in order to be truly happy. So when the narrative becomes an imperative, as I said earlier, this is when it puts immense pressure on people to find Mr. or Ms. Right. Here, the romance story does become oppressive if and when it mandates coupledom for everyone uh, as the only path to happiness, when there are obviously other paths to fulfillment and happiness, obviously other answers to the question of how to live a good life outside of pair-bonded romance. Uh, so you, uh, other pathways such as serial or more casual sexual romantic encounters, pathways such as friendship, career and work, community service, vocation, parenthood, and other family bonds. Okay, last claim, number nine, romance levels the playing field, especially for women. Here's the real happy ending for women. In a romance story, the central women character always wins. By the end, our heroine, no matter who she is, no matter which story, she's happy, safe, financially secure, well-loved, sexually satisfied, set up for a fulfilling life, as is the hero. A warm circle of friends supports them, bad guys in the story have been brought to justice, and families are reconciled. So the main characters go from conflict to harmony, from a disequilibrium of power to equality. Unlike in real life, Unlike in much literary fiction, women never lose in the love relationship. 
This is a huge part of the genre's appeal for readers. Women always gain power in these stories. The romance story is thus, in my reading, a woman-centered fantasy about how to make this man's world work for her. Okay, so with those nine elements, there you have the deep structure of the romance storyline. An analysis of the human condition, a prescription for happiness, uh, a blueprint for how to live the good life, or you could say an illusion, a recipe for disaster, an addiction, the brainwashing of individuals by power structures with something to gain. So you've got to decide for yourselves. Me, I think it's actually some of all of the above in different ways and more. So let's keep going. Let's dig a little bit deeper now. All right, so I want to get to my second question. Is uh, how are we misled by romance? Or another way to put it, is romantic love worth its risks? Now here's another argument. The romance narrative that I've been talking about plays such a pervasive, such a central role in the culture because it offers us, collectively, it offers us, us a safe fantasy space to try to figure out why romantic love is so complicated with such razor's edge potential in our lives for both good and for bad. It's a cultural site, I think, for working through the perennial conundrum, the risky business of love. Now, I'm gonna unpack this argument by telling you a romance story as an example. And I warn you, it's sort of a fierce one. Here is Beverly Jenkins. She's an acclaimed romance novelist. She wrote in 1996 a historical novel called Indigo. Jenkins, she's a major successful novelist in America. She's a USA Today bestseller. She's published over 30 novels to date. She continues to write. She just received the Romance Writers of America Lifetime Achievement Award. She's one of the first and most well-known African-American romance novelists. She specializes in novels that portray uh, black American life in the 19th century. Now, although she wrote Indigo 20 years ago, the novel has become a classic and it's much discussed, partly because of its controversial prologue that provides a type of frame story for the whole plot. Um, I'll outline this prologue for you as a way to interrogate, for us all to interrogate more closely this uh, sort of promise and pitfall of romantic love. Um, so here's the novel, Indigo, in three different covers. It's been released, um, reissued over the 20 years because it's so popular. You can see sometimes you get, this is called a clutch cover here. Right? There's the, that, that always some sort of sexy embrace, the clutch cover and then uh, the more uh, plain ones, but the indigo color throughout. Okay, so Indigo's prologue is an epistolary narrative told through letters. It functions as backstory to the novel as a whole. It's a type of text of terror, really. It recounts the how and why of an African-American man, um, not that guy, uh, literally giving himself into slavery in order to be with the woman whom he loves. So David Wyatt, the man, David Wyatt, he's a free man, land-owning black man in 1831 America. He's working as a merchant sailor. In two letters that constitute the novel's preface, David writes to his sister Catherine to explain that he's given up his freedom in order to marry his pregnant lover, who's an enslaved woman on a southern plantation. For, quote, for the love of a woman named Frances Greeton, I have forsaken all I am and given over my freedom to her master. 
I'm a slave now, Catherine. He's writing to his sister here. He feels deeply the incomprehensibility of what he's done. But Catherine, he tries to explain, to be near her, I would carry water in hell. Jenkins' story, after this preface, jumps forward in time over two decades, and it follows Hester Wyatt, who's now the grown daughter of David and Francis. Hester has become the owner of a freedom house on the Underground Railroad, a, a conductor of escaped slaves from the southern part of the US up to the north. She harbors a wounded man, that guy, who turns out to be Galen Vachon, a fabulously wealthy, free Creole black man, handsome as sin, of course, and he himself also works to help escaped slaves. Romance ensues, including an eventual reunion of our heroine, Hester, with her mother, her long-lost mother, Frances, all on the eve of the Civil War, with its promise of liberation for all African Americans. Now, in regards to this prologue's text of terror, Beverly Jenkins defends her character, David's action, with great rhetorical persuasion based on the notion of love. She argues that love can be a practice of freedom, even when it occurs within, sometimes precisely because it occurs within, a culture viciously tainted by the violence and dehumanization of racism, of white supremacy. Jenkins here evokes bell hooks. Bell hooks is a, a theorist and cultural critic on issues of race and feminism in America. She wrote a very well-known essay that's entitled Love as the Practice of Freedom. Bell hooks in this essay argues for the political and healing power of love. Quote, the moment we choose to love, we begin to work against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move toward freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. That's Bell Hook's quote. So this concept, however, of love as the practice of freedom, it's obviously a complicated one in this context here. It, as exemplified in the narrative of David giving himself into slavery. So I argue that there are dynamics of both freedom and bondage at the heart of romance stories, that there's this, romance stories both fictional and real life, that there's this dynamic that can lead to a nexus of liberation and domination, of empowerment and of loss of self, all in the name or service, apparently, of love. So, Let's try to think about this a little bit more. If love and freedom are tightly related, how is it that love seems so often to lead us astray into some of life's worst, worst bonds, sorry, worst binds and heartbreaks? Does, for example, Indigo's backstory here regarding David count as one such heartbreaking tragedy when his love for Francis leads him to forsake his own freedom? How can David's act of making himself a slave how can that be compatible with true love? Jenkins herself raises these questions. There's a, an author's note at the back of her novel. She quotes in this author's note the factual slave narrative that inspired her own fictionalized version of this story. It's based on an oral history that was recorded as part of the U.S. Federal Writers Project, dating from the 1920s and the 1930s, when the federal, U.S. federal government sent out workers to collect stories, oral histories, narratives of people who were former slaves. So this acquaintance that was recorded uh, in this um, U.S. Writers Project 
of this man named Wyatt speaks, I don't know, maybe in similar ways. He was saying, this guy is crazy to do that. That love is an awful thing, I tell you. I don't think I would give my freedom away to marry anybody. How can you do such a thing? Jenkins, in this novel, she has her heroine Hester echo this assessment after Hester recounts her parents' story to her lover Galen. Love must be a terrible thing, Hester concludes. She adds that love brings only sadness, as she lists all the examples she knows of tragic and unrequited love, including a local black and white couple unable to publicly live out their love because of the race, racism of the time period. So the cliches tell us that love heals all wounds, that love conquers all, and yet an obvious op opposite truth captured also in cliche is that love blinds. Love can blind us to our own best interests, to our own self-preservation. We can love badly to our disadvantage, someone unworthy of our love. Bondage themes of sexual desire and love as trap and battle, cause of blindness and confusion, the spouse is the old ball and chain. All of these are perennial themes spun out about the darker side of love. Um, let me give you one other literary example. As early as the uh, late 17th and 18th century, British amatory fiction writers cautioned how erotic love can breed illusion. I mentioned earlier Eliza Haywood. Uh, she's a precursor of today's popular romance novels. And Afer Bain, who is buried here in London in Westminster. And Afer Bain was herself the very first English woman to earn her living through writing, a fascinating character. So they particularly championed this theme of the dangers of romance. Haywood was a top-selling author of her day, along with uh, Daniel Defoe and Jonathan Swift. This is the cover of her 1725 publication, Phantomina, or Love in a Maze. You can see there's this epigraph there, it bears an epigraph, it's a couplet by the English poet Edmund Waller, in love the victors from the vanquished fly. They fly that wound, and they pursue that die. Sort of hard to read there. In these lines, love is a literal battlefield, isn't it? A space where victors wound and then flee, and where any left-behind lovers who are foolish enough to mount pursuit can only fail. There's no happy endings here. So in Phantomina, Haywood warns readers, women readers in particular, of these dangers of love through her heroine's angry musings when she learns of the faithlessness of her lover, Beauplaisir. False expectations, fruitless hope, there's endless waiting, despair, deception, betrayal, along with, oh, there's a good quote, plenty of lusty happiness as the most luxurious gratification of wild desires could make, and the passionate bliss of the strenuous pressures of his eager arms. It's really a great novel. I urge you to read it but such is the mixed lot of those who love, right? So this great conundrum, is love worth the risk? Sexuality is perhaps the messiest, the most complicated or dangerous aspect of human embodiment. It raises complex psychosocial issues, the vulnerability of opening oneself to another, the risk of toxic masculinity, of self-effacing femininity, fear of assault, the sheer chaotic power of desire to derail reason. So all this creates a, a type of conundrum in the culture, a type of trap in the messages that's constantly fed to us uh, through the culture. You want to love, you must love, love is good for you, and yet love can be bad, even deadly. This puzzle of erotic love is portrayed and explored in endless permutations arising from the pop culture wells of romance storytelling, which we consume in massive quantities in fantasy exploration of how this puzzle can ever work out. So here's a notion. 
erotic, romantic love might be the most dangerous thing we do to ourselves. Love can and does go dreadfully wrong. The rake, in reality, rarely reforms, right? Although the culture makes such bad boy scoundrels look darkly appealing, we over-romanticize romance. The cruel truth is love can break your heart and shed your self-esteem, ruin your finances, leave you with unwanted pregnancy. It can uh, get you killed by a stalker who won't let go. All of this is love too, some perversion of it. Such examples of love are clearly not in the practice of freedom. They don't liberate ourselves or others, to recall Bell Hooks' words. Instead of, instead of freeing us from, they involve us in actions of domination and oppression. These tragic and dark stories of love are in fact the opposite of freedom. They are love is the practice of bondage, or more precisely what I call love is bad bondage. Bondage to an unworthy partner or bondage within cycles of abuse, a bondage to a low sense of self-esteem such that you think you deserve nothing better in your life. So we arrive here at the heart of the thesis in the second question I'm exploring. Romantic love is a life practice among lovers and as a literary cultural narrative is a type of conundrum of freedom and bondage. Love presents the enigma that it simultaneously both binds and frees the lovers. The bonds of love entail love as a practice of avoiding bad bondage, is one way to put it, while learning to accept and maybe even revel in good bondage. So this good bondage involves a restriction of freedom that is key to popular culture's vision of romantic love. You can think of the culturally iconic Christian marriage vow, for example, Tie the knot, bind two partners together, I take thee to have and to hold, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. So love becomes an experience of freedom precisely because it binds you to one very specific and special other. By binding me, you set me free, sings one songster. Romantic love portrays true love as both binding and freeing, and ultimately as freeing because it is binding. This paradox is a tricky one. It raises the complicated questions of self-deception at the heart of much suspicious feminist analysis of the romance genre. Indigo continues to provide illustration. Um, I'll put it back here. Since David's decision to enslave himself makes this point about love so acutely, he makes himself a literal slave for love. How can that be good? In this vision of the romance narrative, love is a self-slavery in which you bind or shackle yourself to another and give up certain freedoms, but willingly forsaking these freedoms as lesser in significance, as ultimately forfeitable. Yet we can easily ask, did David's decision to sell himself into slavery to be with Francis, did it go too far into this earlier described problematic loss of self? It's not hard to argue yes. David gives up self quite literally, the self-determination of legal freedom, for the political, economic, and social bondage of slavery in the racist, white supremacist American South. Frances herself, in the preface, protested David's decision. To her credit, he wrote to his sister in the novel's preface, Frances was furious upon learning what I'd done and refused to speak to me for days. David has given up too much to be with her. It should not have gone so far. David's defense, however, is that he only gave up his outer self in order to gain his heart's true desire. So to put it another way, as a black man living in a time when slavery and racism had curtailed 
the physical, political, economic, and social freedom of so many African Americans. Beverly Jenkins, in her portrayal of the story, argues that David chose to define freedom for himself. He refused to give up the freedom to love. So while Bell Hooks argues that love is the practice of freedom, in composing her novel, Beverly Jenkins offers this twist that the ultimate freedom is the practice of love. She talks about the freedom only love can bring. Now, when it comes to romance storytelling, um, the, the genre suggests there is no difference between the practice of freedom and the practice of a good bondage, of binding yourself to a worthy other. True love equals freedom equals good bondage. David, in this perspective, then was right. And so is Jenkins. David becomes most free when he sells himself into slavery to be with his beloved Francis. This is a paradox so contradictory, however, as to be absurd. And yet it is true. Or else, from this perspective, romantic love means nothing. Now, I'll leave it to each of you here to decide for yourselves what you make of this vision of romantic love. Would you have done what David did? Um, but I want to finish with just one last quick question here uh, before we can get to some discussion. One that asks about gender and erotica in Romance Landia. And it brings us to that uh, most famous or infamous recent contribution to the romance narrative, the international blockbuster Fifty Shades of Grey, whose trilogy, I'll remind you, was written here in England. So question three, what can we learn from romance storytelling about today's changing norms for gender and sexuality? Uh, another way to put it, what's up with all the erotica these days? How is it that romance has gotten so spicy? Uh, so here, to review, in 2013, E.L. James was the world's top-earning writer with an estimated income of 95 million. So she earned more than J.K. Rowling, there's J.K. Rowling, of Harry Potter fame. Uh, 95 million, that was U.S. dollars. Her trilogy, E.L. James's trilogy, has sold over 125 million copies <coughs> in 52 languages. The first book, Fifty Shades of Grey, set records for the fastest-selling paperback ever. The second movie is just about to come out now. Sociologist Eva Illuse, who wrote about the Fifty Shades phenomenon, takes the mainstream success of this trilogy as indicative of an immense change in values uh, quote, an immense change in values in Western culture, a change as dramatic, one might say, as electricity and indoor plumbing, end quote. Now, if you thought that the Fifty Shades trilogy was the sort of a one-off, some weird publishing blip, recent trends are actually proving you wrong. Other erotic romance novels, that is, stories of scorching sex with a love plot that resolves to a traditional happy ending, which is the case with Fifty Shades, um, here, I'll put it up here. Uh, it's actually a very conventional romance story in that regard. These other erotic romance novels have also been maintaining a rather dominatrix-like presence on the bestseller lists. And mainstream romance novels are also featuring more erotic content. Uh, hotter all the time is how some of my authors told me in interviews. Now, I'm not going to debate the feminist or the literary quality of Fifty Shades, although we can talk about that later if you would like. But here's why I think this trend matters. Because woman-authored and woman-centered erotica is an important part of the sex-positive revolution now unfolding. 
that overall has emphasis on equity and inclusion for sexual and gender diversity and against sexual harassment and sexual assault. I think that the, the hashtag MeToo movement has been active on your side of the Atlantic as well. So I see the rise of erotica as part of this current cultural moment, an affirmation of women's sexual pleasure and of sexual equality. These are tales of what you can call clitoracy, not simply of people falling in love, but of women experiencing the fullest sexual satisfaction while doing so, having hot sex with lovers who know how to deliver. This is an anxiety-provoking message for a culture more comfortable with male arousal and satisfaction than with its female counterparts. Women like sex in this storytelling. Their desire is taken as a good and not a shameful thing. So I think these stories do deep work in a culture where women are still expected to look sexy and young but are shamed or dismissed when they do so. There's this impossible double bind that exerts intense pressure. Be, be hot but sexy at the same time. I'm sorry, be, be hot but pure, uh, women are told, at the same time. To be hot and pure at the same time is a very difficult act to pull off. I hear this from my young women students at the university um, all the time. So how to navigate this treacherous terrain marked by such contradictory signposts as the, the hot but pure simultaneous act. So I think the more or less mainstream romance erotica creates a safe space, a transgressive space, an unruly space, a sometimes problematic space, but a shared fantasy space of possibility for working through problems of sex, which are multiple for everyone, but especially for women. So from this perspective, romance storytelling is about trying to figure out the fraught problems, or the Gordian knot of female heterosexual desire in a male-centered world within rape culture. There's this label, mommy porn, which is sometimes used to shame readers or to belittle this genre, but I actually like its frolicsome potential. Uh, so in the genre, women are working out within the realm of fiction and trying to make up through the pleasures of the text some of the inevitable cost to a woman's psyche of living with such toxic ambivalences around gender and sexuality, even as these cultural ties are slowly uncinched. So yes, I think here's a new normal, a fresh sexual revolution with sizzling fiction authored by women as a feisty part of it. You can ask, where is this erotica taking us? Um, a BDSM romance like Shades is just the beginning. Same-sex romances, particularly gay male romances, are now almost mainstream as well within the culture. Uh, how about polyamorous erotica? Singledom stories with happy for now endings, or asexual romance, very much um, uh, new in, in the media and discussion and in romance publishing. So ideally, all of this storytelling, now available from authors, it opens up space in the culture. It queers, by which I mean it, it questions, it transforms oppressive norms that just don't fit for everybody. I think the storytelling is leading us toward a goal of equity and inclusion in support of sexual and racial and gender diversity. I think we get to see if we can write and read our way into more and wider possibilities, into a better future. I think we're not there yet, but I think we're getting closer. And I think romance storytelling helps us get there. And in my books, that is a good place to be going. So I, I wish happy reading, happy endings to us all. And I am delighted to open up uh, now for questions and comments and discussion. Uh, if you want to talk about Fifty Shades, what do you think of David and his decision? 
uh, problems of romance and romance storytelling in the 21st century. Thank you very much.